Good morning, Bethesda. Would you please, if you're able, stand with me and let's read God's Word together this morning. I'm going to be reading from two particular passages, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. So let's begin with Zechariah 3, 1 through 7. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Now, Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even unto the death. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne this morning. It's because of the blood of Jesus that we are even able to dare cry out, Abba, Father, and draw near to you. We are asking you, my Father, that you would do for us that which only you could do, that you would expose the accuser of the brethren in this house this morning. But, Father, even more important than that, that you would make us mindful and aware of the power of the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed of the gospel. We are not ashamed of the cross. And we are not ashamed of the blood of Jesus. For it is that which has purchased us from every tribe and every tongue and every language. And it is because of the blood of Jesus that we can declare this morning that we belong to you, King Jesus. So, Father, let your anointing be stirred up in this house this morning. Give us ears to hear what you would speak by your Spirit. But just as surely as we need to hear your word, we are asking that you would stir us up to become doers of your word and that we would leave this house this morning with a little bit more of a revelation of who you are, that we would leave this morning transformed because you are the God of transformation. And we ask you to do this for the honor and the glory of the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't watch television very much anymore 
I guess a confession, is that anything that I watch, it's usually Star Trek and it's usually the original series. But from time to time, I catch some political thing that's going on on television or it's on some social media or format. And all I can say is that accusations run rampant in our culture. Not just on one side, but on every side. I wish I could say that accusations are limited to the political arena, that accusations are limited to the arena of people outside the faith of Jesus Christ. But if you've been in the church for very long, if you've been walking with Jesus for very long, you know that accusations and the accuser of the brethren is alive and well even within the church of Jesus Christ. When I read Zechariah 3 and Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, the thing that I notice about this is that in both situations, it's almost like a courtroom. You've got the judge, and that is God, because make no mistake about it, he is the supreme and final judge of all things. It doesn't matter what any Supreme Court rules. When God rules differently, God's rule will carry. A court can prove you innocent, but if God says guilty, guess what? And a court can say guilty, but guess what? If God says you're innocent, then you are innocent because he is the judge and he has the supreme rule. And you are free this morning to interact, to clap, to praise the Lord because I'm talking about the blood of Jesus. And I do not know how we can stay silent and quiet and passive when I speak of something so majestic, so marvelous, and so vital to our Christian life as the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's a courtroom scene. You have a judge, and that judge is God himself. But then you have a prosecutor, and that prosecutor is identified as Satan or the accuser. And by the way, the word Satan means the accuser or the adversary, because that's who he is, and that's what he does. Let me just take you through Scripture and show you the role of this nemesis. In Genesis chapter 3, you know the story well. Adam and Eve have been enjoying this incredible open encounter with God because they are sinless and they are in paradise. Everything is pristine. God's given them a command. From every tree of the garden you can freely eat except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. So Eve is just minding her own business. And here's the Satan, or Satan. And he says to her, has God said? Now we can't judge Eve because how many times have you heard God speak to your heart and almost within seconds after God has spoken to you through his word, through a sermon, through some impression of his spirit upon your heart, you've heard the enemy say, did God really say are you sure that God said that? Are you sure God really wants you to do that? Are you sure that's what God meant? And he goes on and he says, surely you won't die, creating doubt and suspicion about the motive and the word of God. His tactics have not changed because they are just effect as effective today as they were in the garden with Eve. How many Sons and daughters of God have forfeited, abandoned the call of God upon their life because they heard the adversary, they heard the accuser say, did God really say? Are you sure God can do that through you? 
But it didn't, it may have started there with Eve, but it did not end with her. In Job chapter 1, you've got another heavenly courtroom scene. This time it's God and the angels of God are appearing before him. And God begins to brag on his servant Job. And what does the Satan do? He comes up to God and he says, does Job trust God for nothing? I'll bet that if you took his money and took his possessions and took his relationships and took this and took that, he would curse you and die. And God, being God, said, all right. And what did Job do? He lost everything in a day. And these words came out of that man's mouth. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The accuser stands before God day and night, according to the passage that I read you from Revelation chapter 12, accusing us before the Father day and night. But he also, almost day and night, accuses the Father to us because that's what he does. In Zechariah chapter 3, the passage that I read to you, he is called the accuser of the brethren. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has spent 40 days fasting. And at the end of that time of fasting, he is hungry, but the enemy comes to him and he says, if you are the Son of God. Now, before Jesus was driven into the wilderness for that time of fasting, he had been baptized by John. And when Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens rolled back and the Spirit spoke. As the, as the Spirit came upon him in bodily form like a dove, the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So now he's being confronted by the accuser of the brethren. He's being confronted by Satan. And what does Satan say? If you are the son of God. Do you see the pattern here? Can you look into the reflection or the mirror of your own life? And can you see that any time you were about to step out in faith, any time you were about to move and do what God had asked you to do, any time you were about to confess the greatness of God and his power to do incredible things in and through your life, the enemy comes and says, well, who do you think you are? Don't you remember what you were like a year ago? Don't you remember where you were two weeks ago? Don't you remember the nasty little attitude you had yesterday? And he begins to work in our lives, accusing us before the Father. And if that's not enough, he uses well-meaning people. Maybe you share the dream or the vision that God's given to you. Maybe you begin to step out in the authority that God's placed upon your life. Maybe you begin to stand out to declare what the Lord has given you to declare. And some well-meaning saint who just wants to bless you comes up to you and says, Well, honey, I think you need to clean yourself up a little bit before you do that. I think you need to get it a little bit more right. I think you need to lengthen your skirt. I think you need to cover your body art. I think you need to wear less makeup. And it just goes on and on and on. And you are so quiet right now. Please tell me that I am not the only one that has experienced that. When the accuser of the brethren uses well-meaning saints, church, it is incumbent upon us to recognize who it is and to realize that our battle is not with flesh and blood. 
that our battle is against principalities and powers and spiritual rulers of wickedness. That comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down vain imaginations and every high thought that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Our battle's not with each other. One of the, Stuart and I will celebrate 20 years of being married next week, May 15th. I know, praise God. And even though he's not here this morning, he is alive, I promise. <laughs> One of the greatest revelations I received regarding marriage is this. We are not in a war with each other. We are actually on the same side. And when I stopped fighting against him, locked arms, and began to fight with him against the real enemy, it made all the difference in the world. What would happen if you realized that your children are not your enemy? What would happen if you began to realize that your parents are not your enemy? What would happen if you began to realize that the person that you're married to is not your enemy? Your enemy is not flesh. Your enemy is spirit. And you can fight against flesh all day long, but until you deal with the spiritual element, that fight will still be ongoing. It may be a different face and a different name, but it will still be ongoing. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. My first encouragement to you is do not join forces with him and become an accuser of the brethren along with him. My second encouragement is that when you face accusations, whether they're coming from a physical person or whether they're coming from those whispers of the enemy, that you would begin to realize that he is the accuser of the brethren and it's not his place to win. It's your place. Because I can tell you in both Zechariah and in Revelation, the accuser of the brethren is mentioned. He's exposed and he's identified, but that is not the focus of either of these passages. Because you see, when we engage in spiritual warfare, Satan is not the center of our attention. If you make the satanic and the demonic the center of your attention, then that will become your focus and you will lose the battle before you even start. Your focus and the center of your attention has been, should be now, and should always be King Jesus himself. So Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah 3, he's being accused by the accuser of the brethren before the throne of God. Let me give you a little bit of history about Joshua the high priest. The book of Zechariah was a book that was written post Exile, meaning that the people who have been in Babylonian exile have now returned home to Israel. It's a difficult time, a difficult moment for them. They did not come back to parades and to lavish events and lavish buildings. They came back to a temple that had been burned down and destroyed and ransacked. They came back to a city whose wall had been devastated, whose homes had been burned with no money, with no real political power, just a little bit of government backing, and a dream, and a word from the Lord. Joshua comes back, 
And the only priestly garments that he would have would be the priestly garments that belonged to his father and his grandfather. Because the garments of the high priest would be handed down from one generation to another. These garments would have gone into captivity. These garments would have been worn by men who were compromised and who allowed the priesthood to become corrupt. And now here's Joshua, and he's wearing filthy garments. Maybe filthy because of things he had done. Maybe filthy because of where he had been. Maybe filthy because of where he came from and his ancestry and his lineage. But the garments are filthy nonetheless. Do you ever feel like you're standing before God in filthy garments? Do you ever feel like you're standing before God trying to validate yourself for what you were like 20 years ago or what you did two weeks ago or what your family was like or what your parents did and you're constantly standing before God saying, oh God, I know I'm like this. I know my family's like this. I know where I've been. I know what I've done. Here's the Lord's solution. It's his solution then. It's his solution now. He doesn't say, let's wash the clothes. He doesn't say, let's repurpose the clothes. He says, get those filthy things off of him. Because that's what the Father does with our past. That's what the Father does with our sin. That's what the Father does with the accusations that the accuser holds over us. He doesn't fix them. He gets rid of them. He clothed Joshua. Can I tell you that when the accuser of the brethren comes against you, that your defense is the fact that you are clothed, not by garments that you've sewn. You are clothed, not by your degrees, not by the things that you hang on your wall. You are clothed, not by your bank account, not by the businesses that you've built. You are clothed, not by anything that you could ever do for yourself. You are clothed in the righteousness of God himself because of his son, Jesus Christ. He clothes you. The enemy wants to bring up an accusation against you. You just remind him, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You remind him of who you are and you remind him of what the Father has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just stop with taking the old clothes away. He brings clean clothes and clothes him with that which is clean. He's wearing the garments of his family's past, filth, unimaginable, and they're removed. And then he's clothed with the new. Have you ever looked through Scripture to see what God clothes you with? He clothes us with joy because we take off the garments of sadness to put on the garments of praise and of joy. He clothes us with righteousness. He clothes us with salvation. He clothes us with power from on high because he told his disciples, do not leave Jerusalem. Stay there until you be clothed with power from on high. We're clothed with the full armor of God. We're no longer exposed we're no longer vulnerable and naked to the whims and to the accusations of the enemy. We are clothed in the glory of the Father himself through his Son, Jesus Christ. We're cleansed. We're clothed. The next thing that happens is that he has, um, it's called a mitre. It's like a turban or a headdress that the priest would wear. And it's filthy too. 
and that's removed, and a clean mitre or a clean crown is placed upon his head. See, that speaks of authority. The Father doesn't just give you passion and purpose. He gives you the authority in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, to walk out the things that he's called you to do. You are not a person without authority. You have the greatest authority in the world. You have the the authority of the name of Jesus, and you have the authority of his blood backing you. What enemy can stand against you? What principality and what power would try to push you and manipulate you when you have the name and the blood of Jesus on your side? He doesn't just stop with cleaning him up, clothing him, and crowning him. He calls him. I look out at you this morning, whether you're in the balcony or whether you're on the lower floor of the sanctuary, every man, every woman that has said yes to Jesus Christ, you are the called of God. He has called you and chosen you from among every tongue and tribe and people. He has called you for the praises and the glory of his name. Now let me connect this to Revelation chapter 12. Because Zechariah 3 doesn't mention the blood, but can I tell you that without the blood of Jesus Christ, we cannot be cleansed? Because it is the blood of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Can I tell you that without the blood of Jesus, we cannot be clothed? Because it is because we are clothed in his blood that we now have the ability to draw near to the Father. We are crowned, given authority by his blood. And we are called because his blood has made us sons and daughters of the Most High God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we are told that Jesus is our Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, if you want to look it up, it's Exodus chapter 12. In the Old Testament, Israel is captive to Egypt, the slaves to to the Egyptian powers. And as God is about to bring them out, the last and final plague is about to come, the death of the firstborn. And so what does God tell them to do? He says, take a lamb. Take the blood of the lamb and then take hyssop, which is like a a plant that has a paintbrush-like quality. Dip the hyssop in the blood and then mark your doorpost. Apply the blood to your doorpost and the angel of death will pass over you. Jesus has become our Passover. Church, when you said yes, when you were born again, he brought you out of sin and out of the slavery and the bondage of sin and he touched you with the blood of his own son and now we are the blood-bought the redeemed the sons and daughters of God if the blood of bulls and goats can cleanse someone how much more the blood of our Passover lamb Jesus Christ all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The hymn writer said it like this, My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. The blood of Jesus has made me a child of God. 
Let me just read through some things that the blood accomplishes for us through Scripture. I think they're going to be uh, posted up here behind me. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18, and Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, the blood of Jesus brings us into covenant with God. Covenant is a legal word. It grants us legal standing with the Father. And not just legal standing, the blood of Jesus gives us the legal standing of a son or of a daughter. John chapter 6, verse 54, it is by the blood of Jesus that we have been granted eternal life with the Father. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it is the blood of Jesus that has purchased the church of Jesus Christ. Because you see, church, you are not your own. We have been bought with a price. That's why I think Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, I, it is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives within me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. We've been purchased. We've been purchased from the grips of sin. We've been purchased from the slavery that held us captive. We have been purchased and now we belong to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, says that his blood has brought us near. Because you see, once we were far off, alienated, we were not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. We had no right to call God our Father and to draw near to him, but the blood of Jesus has brought us near. And now we can come boldly to the throne of grace and cry out, Abba, Father, and make our petitions known to him. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, says that it's his blood that has sanctified us, set us apart, made us holy. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, says it is his blood that has redeemed us and bought us off the slave market. I want to focus on three specific things that the blood of Jesus does for us. I'm gonna blame this portion on the high school Bible class of Bethesda Christian School. Mr. Chadwick asked me to speak on propitiation, reconciliation, and justification. And I do not think there could possibly have been a student in that classroom more blessed by that study than myself. It's the blood of Jesus that becomes our propitiation. Propitiation is a big, fancy, doctrinal word that sometimes we stumble all over, but I believe that propitiation may be one of the most important words in all of Scripture. The word propitiate or propitiation means to appease or to satisfy. Typically, it has to do with a deity, and in particular, with reference to the New Testament, it has to do with appeasing or satisfying the wrath of the Father. The best illustration, and this is a poor illustration, but the best illustration that I have. Several years ago, my husband and I went into a very fancy restaurant, very upscale. We knew that we were going to spend a lot of money just eating dinner and drinking water. But we were doing it, I think it was for an anniversary. We went into this restaurant. We, are, we like to eat dinner early. We went in, it was about a quarter after five. The restaurant had opened at 4.45. So we walked in and we were the first ones in the restaurant. The hostess acknowledged us and asked us to be seated because they weren't quite ready yet. Now that bothered me because I'm thinking you've been open 30 minutes. You should have been ready 30 minutes ago. But my husband is doing what good husbands do. He's giving me the look. 
be nice. Calm down, girl. We had been sitting there for about five minutes, and another couple walks in, and this couple knew the hostess. She identified them by name, and she says, oh, I've got a place for you. And she immediately takes them to their table and stands there and talks with them eight minutes and 26 seconds because I counted. <laughs> I'm furious. Stuart's trying to calm me down, but I'm furious. I am filled with anger and wrath over our gross mistreatment and the incompetence of this person. I am just so angry. I'm, I'm like, let's just leave. I'm fine with going to Wendy's. Let's just get out of this place. And I saw the manager. And I called the manager over. And Stuart suddenly decided he needed to go to the restroom. <laughs> I call the waiter over. I, I'm sorry, I call the manager over. And I tell the manager what happened. And I, I'm assuming that I looked pretty upset and angry. And he said to me, I am so sorry that this happened to you. Now, that helped, but I was still mad. And then he said, dinner is on me tonight. Order anything on the menu that you like, including dessert, and the dinner for you and your husband is on me tonight. My anger was appeased. <laughs> that is a poor illustration of propitiation. But here's the truth of the matter. You have a holy God who is just. And you have a loving Father who wants to redeem his people. But how can he let us go free and declare us to be not guilty and still be holy and just? How can he satisfy his anger against the sin of humanity? Not just for the sin of the past, the sin of the present, and all the sin that is yet to come. How can his anger be satisfied and yet his holiness and his justice remain intact? And here's his solution. It's the blood of Jesus. When he sees the blood of his son, his anger is appeased. This is reflected in the Old Testament when the priest is through making sacrifices, covered head to toe with the blood of those sacrifices. And he goes to the bronze laver to wash before he enters into the holy place. This bronze laver is made from the mirrors that the people brought with them from out of Egypt. So it has a reflective quality. And this laver is filled with water. So when the water is clear and you look, you can see yourself through the water. But when he puts his hands in the water, his blood-stained, blood-covered hands, and when he washes his face and the blood comes off his face and he looks at himself in the water, he sees himself through the blood. Is that how you see yourself? Do you see yourself through the blood of the Son of God? Do you see yourself as that son or that daughter that is so valuable that the Father, in order to satisfy His holiness and His justice, and in order to show Himself to be a loving, merciful, kind Father, sacrificed His own Son and poured the blood of His own Son out at Calvary so that you and I could be seen through the blood of His Son? When he looks at you, he does not see what you used to be. When he looks at you, he sees you through the blood of his son. That's propitiation. And I'm looking at you this morning, and every one of you that have said yes to the Son of God, you know what it's like to have the blood 
as your propitiation, whether you recognize it or not. The second thing that I wanted to focus on, the blood of Jesus Christ reconciles us to the Father. Reconciles a financial term. It means the balancing of the books. The Greek word is katalogia. It means to be cataloged, and where we get our word cataloged. We've been reconciled. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It is the blood of Jesus that has paid my debt. We sang an old song here years ago. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And that's what happened. The debt that I owed was so great, so enormous, that a thousand lifetimes could not have paid it. But the Father, in his mercy and in his holiness, reconciled my debt through the blood of his own Son. Propitiation, reconciliation, justification. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 26, But now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because of the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We've been justified. When I ask people, what does it mean to be justified? The most common response is it means that I have been found not guilty. And that is absolutely right and complete truth. But there's more to it. Let me take you to a deeper level of justification. In Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities, I'm giving you less than the spark notes or the cliff notes on this. In Tale of Two Cities, there is one woman named Lucy, and there are two men who love Lucy. One man is wanted by France. The other man has no crime against him. There's no one looking for him. There isn't anyone trying to get him to punish him for some crime that they think he's committed. These two men look a lot alike. They look very much alike. The man that Lucy loves gets arrested and he's going to be beheaded or he's going to be, I think he's going to be hanged. And so the man that she doesn't love but looks like the man that she does love loves her so much that he goes into the prison, bribes his way into the prison, and exchanges places with a guilty man. Now, this guilty man doesn't leave as a prisoner running for his life. He doesn't leave as a man with no identity or as a man with a wanted poster somewhere for his arrest. When he leaves, he leaves with the identity of the innocent man. 
Are you guys following me where I'm going? When we're justified, we're not only declared not guilty, but we are now taking on the identification of Jesus Christ himself. We are now moving through this world. That's why Paul says, it's no longer I that lives. It's Christ who lives within me. That's justification. I have a new identity. It's not Marty 2.0. It's Jesus in me, alive and well. When the enemy brings accusations against us, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. That's not just a group of songs that we sing or it's not just something that we say. The blood of the Lamb is our legal standing before God. It has made us sons and daughters of the Most High God. We have been propitiated, reconciled, and justified before the Father. What accusation can now be brought against us? Because any accusation that's brought against us is brought against the Son of God Himself. And he stands before the Father, interceding on my behalf and your behalf. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The focus is not on the adversary. The focus is on the one who shed his blood for me and for you. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. But what is the word of our testimony except what the blood has purchased for us? What is the word of our testimony except what the blood of Jesus has done in and through our lives? And finally, and we love not our lives unto the death. The reason that we can love our lives not unto the death is because it's not us, it's him in us. And we are no longer our own, but it's Christ Jesus who is inside of us, living and moving and having his being. They overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimonies, and they love not their lives unto the death. I'm an Indiana Jones fan. Raiders of the Lost Ark, classic Indiana Jones. One of my favorite scenes in Indiana Jones is when this man, he looks like a Middle Eastern ninja, meets Indy on this narrow street and pulls out these beautiful decorative sabers and begins doing all kinds of fancy twirls and whirls with them and just it's very intimidating but Indiana Jones pulls out a gun and just shoots him <laughs> when the adversary brings accusations against you when well-meaning saints of God say things that hurt and are accusatory, don't pull out a sword. Speak the name of Jesus. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't get defeated. Don't get pushed back. Talk about the blood of Jesus and what his blood has done for you. And give your word a testimony. Because see, here's my testimony. I'm not what I'm going to be. But I'm not what I used to be because of the grace of Jesus. There's been an all-out concerted effort in many groups that call themselves churches across this country to remove all mention of the cross and the blood from sermons, teachings, 
Bible readings, and songs. They may increase their numbers, they may increase their money, and they may big, build a bigger building. But I present to you this morning, Bethesda Community Church, without the cross, and without the blood of Jesus, there is no power. Without the cross and without the blood of Jesus, there is no salvation. You can have more people, but you can have more people who are lost. You can have more money, but if that money's not going to declare the greatness of our God and what Jesus has done for us on that cross, it's just a big bank account. And a big building's just a big building, empty without the presence of the living God. There are three groups of people in this congregation this morning. The first group are those who are here and you have never allowed the blood of Jesus to touch your life. You've never said yes to the lordship, to the salvation that's offered to you through the Lord Jesus. The second group, you're saved, but you have failed to recognize and appropriate the blood of Jesus to your lives. Maybe you've spent more time focusing on the adversary and the adversity than you have on the person of Jesus Christ the accuser of the brethren, twisting the truth and having a heyday with your life. The third group, people who just need to be reminded that the fight that we have is not with flesh and blood, but it's with an accuser who typically works behind the scenes to sucker punch us and to try to move us from our place of peace with the Father. If you are in any of those three groups this morning, would you stand with me please? Lord Jesus, thank you for your blood. Thank you that we who once were dirty have now been cleansed and clothed and given authority that can only come from you and given a call, a purpose, and a passion for the things of your kingdom. For any son or daughter this morning that's standing because they've never said yes to salvation. They've never said yes to your lordship. My Father, as I call upon your name this morning, would you just save them? For those who've been allowing the enemy to have a heyday with them, to sucker punch them with things that people have said, would you allow them, Father, to move their eyes from what the enemy is doing and to look full into your wonderful face and see the glory and the excellence of who you are and to be reminded that there is power in your blood. And Father, for those of us who need to be reminded that our fight is not with flesh and blood, that Father, it's by the blood, the word of our testimonies, and by not loving our lives unto the death that we overcome. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for all that you're doing in our lives. You are good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.